0: Good morning, everybody. Please pray with me. Father God, we pray now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your most holy word, that you would continue to let it wash over us in such a fashion that we are changed, and that we would grow in our understanding and our perception of the change that you are making in us and respond accordingly. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the church? And what does the church do? Throughout history, Christians have attempted to express those two very basic questions. And they've done so based on their personal experiences, backgrounds, and their own churches, individual churches, natures, and priorities. Throughout history, the world has looked in on the church and tried to express what the church is and what the church does. And whether it's Christians from the inside or the world looking in from the outside, you can imagine that, as is true in many aspects of life, some descriptions of the church are based solely on opinion or preference, or maybe personal experience. Others are based on history or observation. And of course, for those who believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, as we do, we try to derive our description of what the church is and what the church does based on how God describes it in the Bible. When we think about how people perceive the church, culturally speaking, We can point to a variety of different expressions. Culturally, some prefer the church to be a place of solemnity. They want a solemn experience. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the great author, said, I like the silent church before the service begins, better than any preaching. I'm highly offended by that. Others think that the church is a place of education. Henry Ward Beecher once said that the church is not a gallery for the better exhibition of eminent Christians, but a school for the education of imperfect ones. Some people believe that the church is the place that is only for the religious among us. Paula Deen, the well-known chef, said that I am more spiritual then I am religious, and so I don't go to church, I go to the beach. Some view the church as a gas station, the place where they come, up, they come to get filled up spiritually on the weekend so they can go back out and have the fuel that they need to go about their week with God. Others view the church as a place that engages in the formalities of life's transitions, whether that's christening babies or recognizing Graduations, or weddings, or funerals. And finally, some view the church as the place where we meet God. And when we meet God, we're therefore saved. As St. Augustine of Hippo boldly proclaimed, there is no salvation outside of the church. So, what is the church? The Bible doesn't give us a succinct list or description of what the church is and what the church does in just one place. In fact, the Bible actually debatably gives up to 96 different descriptions of what these people, the church, look like. And different metaphors to communicate that and commands of what the church is and what the church is supposed to do. Some of the most common descriptions are word pictures or metaphors that you are familiar with. The church is called the Bride of Christ. It's called the Body of Christ. It's called the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's called the Royal Priesthood. The church is called the pillar and buttress of truth. And the church is called the family of God. What becomes clear is that despite all the descriptions spread throughout the New Testament, that a good starting place when it comes to trying to describe the church is that the church is not a place. It's not a building or an organization. But the church is a people. You don't come to church. You come to worship with the church. The church is a people who are gathered together, called by God, by his grace, through faith in Jesus, to glorify him by worship and service to him in the world. This morning we're beginning a new series that we're calling The Gathered People. And we're going to talk about the nature and the function of the local church. It strikes me that we talk and describe, biblically, all kinds of different aspects of the Christian life with some regularity. We talk about salvation, we talk about the nature of the atonement, we talk about the love of God, we talk about what it means to be good parents or good neighbors, we talk about how to be faithful to God with the money or the resources that he gives us. But it's not all that often that we remind ourselves of what the church itself actually is and what the church is supposed to do. And so what I want to do today is begin this series that we're calling The Gathered People because one of the most common words to describe the church in the New Testament is the word ecclesia, and that word at its most basic means gathering or an assembly. A bunch of people that get together and overwhelmingly that is used to describe the local church. And over the next number of weeks we'll be looking at what this gathered people actually is and what they do. Today we start with the fact that this gathered people is a redeemed people, that the church at its core exists because of a work of God in redemption. And What I want to try to do is just to paint a picture for you by giving you a couple of snapshots of how God works throughout biblical history. How in the early Old Testament, he gathers people to himself. And that that tendency to gather people to himself will continue throughout all of history. And one of the defining marks of that gathered people is the fact that God redeems them. Redemption is the action that he engages them with again and again and again. And we see that that in some ways carries over to the New Testament. Not just for Old Testament Israel, but for the New Testament church. And we'll look at that together. The church, by definition, is a redeemed people. We might even say, it's sort of overarching theme of this morning's message, is that the church is bound to God, and its members are bound together through redemption. The church is bound to God, and its members are bound together through redemption. So let's consider the Old Testament together. God, from the very beginning of time, has made a plan to glorify himself and his name in the world through groups of people that he has gathered together to display his works and his ways. Adam and Eve were the first of the created and they had his image. They were bearers of that image. And their family and every human henceforth bears the image of God. But then in Genesis chapter 17, God as the world is growing and expanding, and humanity is expanding, and different groups of people are starting to emerge, God selects for himself a particular person by which he is going to show himself and let the world see him through his descendants. And his name was Abraham. In Genesis chapter 17, God makes a covenant with Abraham, and this is just a section of what he says God says, I will establish my covenant You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. So God takes Abraham, he promises to bless him, and to make him into a great nation of people, and to give him a specific land, and to be God to them. And by way of implication, if he was to be their God, they would be his people. I am your God, and you are my people. That continues as God takes Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and from there establishes a specific nation, the nation of Israel, through 12 tribes. You see that in Genesis chapter 35. Genesis 35, verses 11 and 12 says this, God said to him, Jacob, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. And from there, the Bible goes on to explain how 12 tribes of Israel become a great nation, a gathered people of God. And in this gathered people of God, God would display his character and his attributes and his works and his ways throughout all of Old Testament history. And one of the defining works of God that is displayed through this people is his work of redemption. I wonder what you think of when you think of the word redemption or to redeem. To redeem something is to buy something back. It's to set something free. It's to bring something into safety or to rescue something. To redeem something is to deliver it from one place or one position to another place or another position. Redemption is an action. It's a sacrifice. It's a work of love. And throughout the Old Testament, we see various ways in which God chooses to redeem this people, Israel. And we could probably break them down into two general categories. God chooses to redeem them physically speaking. The nation of Israel finds themselves in trouble again and again and again, largely because of their sin, and so they are enslaved. They're enslaved in Egypt. They're enslaved by the Assyrians or the Bab- and the Babylonians. They, these people find themselves needing to be rescued. And God just goes ahead and does that. Secondly, we see that redemption comes through terms of spiritual redemption by forgiving them of their sins. Here's a couple quick examples. In the book of Exodus, the Lord rescues or redeems physically the people of Israel from their enslavement in Egypt. And many of you have heard the story. That God raises up a man named Moses. He sends them into Egypt. And Moses tells the Pharaoh to let his people go. To let God's people go. Pharaoh says no. And so ten plagues are inflicted on the nation. All to display God's power. That his redemptive purposes might be made known. And after the tenth plague... The Egyptians let the Israelites go, and they begin to chase them down. But as Moses, the prophet who leads them out of Egypt into the wilderness, sings to God and praise, he says this. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And so God's steadfast love, his unwavering commitment to these people motivates his work of redemption. And it's this steadfast love, this unwavering commitment that will continue to motivate God's redeeming work of the people of Israel and will motivate his redeeming work of those he calls to himself in the New Testament to be his people, and he will be their God. The second type of redemption that you see is spiritual in nature in the Old Testament, and this is just very clearly the forgiveness of sins. Isaiah chapter 44 is one of many passages we could look at, but in verse 22 and 23, God says to the prophet and therefore to Israel, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth in singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and he will be glorified in Israel. The need to be redeemed necessarily implies that the people are far off. You don't need to be redeemed if you're near to God you need to be redeemed if you're far off from God their sins have made them such and it's interesting how he says that this description of redemption is like taking a cloud and just covering over blotting out their transgressions or their sins are like a mist that dissipates in the air they're distant from God They're sold into spiritual slavery. But God buys them back. He blots out their sins. And he specifically calls them to return to him. And then something happens in history. The whole landscape of human history changes some years after that. Because Jesus comes. God's very own son And from that moment forward, a new covenant is established that God will not just gather people to himself based on their ethnicity, but he will gather people to himself based on their faith in his son, Jesus, particularly for the forgiveness of their sins. And so that brings us to the New Testament time. The church, the church is a redeemed people of the New Testament, Christians have very mixed views about how closely we should identify the New Testament church with Old Testament Israel. The distinctions between the two are pretty clear, right? In Old Testament Israel, you see that the people are uh, of one ethnic race, they're Jewish. We see that they function under a law or a theocracy, and therefore they live under that theocracy. We see that they are marked by a physical sign, a sign of circumcision. But in the New Testament church, we see that those gathered people of God, is not just from one race, they're actually from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. We see that they don't live under one unified law, physical law or theocracy, they're actually from the nations with its multitude of laws, but they're distinct in that they gather together and local assemblies, even in those nations. And we see that they're not marked by a physical sign of circumcision, but rather they're marked by a physical activity. The activity of baptism is what displays their allegiance and identity to the world. So there's a lot of differences between the Old Testament people of Israel and the New Testament people of the church, but there are some big consistencies. Particularly, that the unifying marker of the people of God is that they've been redeemed. Redemption through Jesus Christ is the doorway by which God moves a person and brings them into a people. Redemption. And unlike the physical redemption of the Old Testament, this redemption, this rescue, this deliverance has a variety of expressions in the New Testament. And so let's explore just four of them together. First one we see is that redemption is offered through the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. To look at this, we see Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 will be on the board behind me here. It says, in him... In Jesus, we have redemption. We have been bought back to God through his blood. The forgiveness of your trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven And things on earth. The whole story of God's people in the Old Testament displays that God is holy and just and righteous, and people are not. (laughs) That all of human history leads to a pinnacle that leads to the righteous Redeemer coming, Jesus. That those who put their faith in Him would, in fact, be rescued, redeemed, bought back to God because their sins are forgiven. Jesus is that Redeemer. And it's interesting how the mystery of God's will is described in such a way as this. And the purpose of how he unite all things in himself is displayed in this. And when you listen to the words that he uses here, you you immediately, at least I would think, if you have a spiritual inkling at all in your body, become attracted to this. Because you have these grandiose words like the riches of God's grace that he lavishes upon us and the mystery of his will. Who doesn't want to understand the mystery of the divine? And who doesn't want to see how God works all of these things out, the things that are only seen in eternity that we cannot yet see here on earth, while all the while receiving this incredible lavishing and wisdom and insight. Those are great descriptions that all point to redemption. Redemption is God lavishing his good gifts upon you. It happens, it says, through the blood of Jesus, God's wrath is appeased through blood sacrifice. Redemption means the forgiveness of sins. It means that when you are far off from God, when you're rebelling against God, when you're apathetic toward God, that when he redeems you, he puts the cloud over them and blots them out. Never to be seen again. That your sins dissolve like a mist in the air, as it says in Isaiah chapter 44. This is the description of redemption. And there are some implications here. One of the implications is that if the church is truly the community of the redeemed, then what that means is that the church should be marked with an overwhelming sense of gratitude... Because of that forgiveness means that when the church gathers together on Sunday, when the community of the redeemed come together to worship, it means first and foremost that the purpose or the chief goal of the Sunday service, even of this Sunday service, is that the redeemed are together and they express their gratitude to God and their willingness to continue to follow him by sitting under his word. Secondly, it means that gratitude begins to flavor the way that people interact with each other and their outlook on life in their interactions with God. Have you ever met someone who's received so much and ingratitude is the response that is evident in them? I mean, you've all seen the child who has had the exceptional gift given to them on their birthday or on Christmas and immediately they move past the next one greedily looking past that one greedily looking for the next one <laughs> or maybe even you were that child you look back and you say I remember that one very good gift that was given to me and I actually complained about it I was that child or how about the person who falls overboard in the ocean liner the person who is drowning in the sea. And someone quickly grabs a life preserver and throws it to them. And after a short struggle, that person grabs hold of the life preserver and they pull him with all of their might back toward the boat against the current and against the waves. And as they struggle to lift him over the side rail back onto the deck, the crowd begins to cheer because the person's been rescued. And the crew begins to express relief and excitement because the person's been rescued. And as he struggles to expel the cold salt water from his lungs and regain his breath, and he comes to, everybody erupts in cheers. And after he comes to, he immediately looks at the people around him and he says, You idiot! How could you throw the life preserver six feet to my left instead of right at me? And what took you so long in pulling me in? Are you weak? And how come this thing is so small? I expected something that would be a little bit more comfortable on the way in. I mean, seriously, this, this ship is just not prepared. I think this whole place needs a new crew. What do you want to do to that person? Yeah. You want to unrescue him. You want to throw him back overboard and let him fend for himself because the ingratitude for the rescue is resounding. You know, it's amazing to me that God doesn't unrescue us sometimes. That was some of the things that I hear Christians say or see Christians do, I'm surprised that God sometimes just doesn't throw us back overboard because the ingratitude is astounding. May it never be said of the people of our church that we don't show the proper gratitude to God for redeeming us. May we express it, live it, act as a people who are drowning in our sin, but we're redeemed by a Savior. The church is bound to God because of redemption. And its members are bound together because of this redeeming work. The second example we see in the New Testament is that it, redemption expresses just how precious the church is to God. We could see this in a variety of passages, but if one of the most obvious is Ephesians chapter five, verses 25 through 27. Here the Apostle Paul is talking about husbands and wives in Christ in the church, and he's using an analogy comparing the husbands to Jesus and the wives to the church. And this is what he says in verse 25. He says, "Husbands, love your wives." and the church to be referred to as the bride we catch a glimpse of how precious the gathered people are to god did you know that yesterday it was estimated that in between 2 and 3 billion people turned on their televisions to watch prince harry of england who is now the duke of sussex marry Meghan Markle, the American actress. Two to three billion people worldwide. That is absolutely astonishing. Why do we care that much about that story? I mean, these are people that you're never going to meet. These are people that are never going to meet you. These are people that you don't particularly care about. And they certainly don't care about you. (laughs) So why did two to three billion people tune in to watch this? Well, I think for a variety of reasons. I think, of course, we like the pomp and the circumstance of a royal wedding. I think that we like to view opulence, even though it's not our own opulence. I think more than those things, however, I think it is that because people are still compelled by a good love story. And even the formality of love expressed in what you could call a fairy tale wedding is something that draws people in. It's precious, in a sense. And so when Jesus is united to his bride, the redeemed, God uses the language of the most intimate, the most important, the most precious relationship that we have in this life, the relationship to our spouse, to display just how he feels about this gathered people. Precious. The church is bound to God, and the members of the church are bound to each other because of redemption. Number three, we move quickly from here. Redemption takes us out of lawlessness and it purifies us. Titus chapter 2.14 talks about Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us, to buy us back. From all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The gathered people of God, the redeemed, the local church, are moved from a world that is overarchingly lawless in its moral and spiritual code to a purpose and a direction and a future that has the law of love driving it. Chiefly, God's love expressed to us by redeeming us. By extension, our love expressed to God by loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's the new directive for those who follow Jesus. And number four, redemption changes our citizenship and it gives us a new identity. We talk about this a fair amount at Old North Church because. We see so clearly in Romans as we talked about this spring. And in other places in the Bible that the transference from one realm to another is one of the predominant ways we understand our new life in Christ. One of my favorite passages along this line is 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. And I wish we had more time to talk about it, but just to make a couple of observations. Peter says this. He says, you are a chosen race. Listen to this language, it's beautiful. A chosen race, a royal race if the church the redeemed are taken out of darkness and put into God's marvelous light then the role he says is to proclaim the excellencies of God we were nothing but God made us something we were a people of no status but God made us through faith in Jesus to become royalty. We were destined for a life of meaninglessness, but God gives us a purpose, a direction, a hope, and a future. We were once disconnected on our own, but now we are a people, God's people. We were once destined to die in our sins, but God redeemed us. He gives us a future, and the implication of that is if He does all of that sort of transferring work and new identity work in you, that it's never going to be undone, that He will keep you forever. And so the question becomes are you among the redeemed? Or do you just go to church? And I'm asking seriously because I know in a room this size that we probably have some among us here who are people who come to church with some regularity and we are so happy that you are here. (laughs) And yet, we desire so much more for you. We desire to help you grow from coming to church to actually being the church. And the mechanism that God uses to do that is redemption. Maybe nobody's ever told you, how that works. That Jesus, God's son, lived a perfect life. That he died a sacrificial death on my behalf and yours. That anybody who would put faith in him would be forgiven. That as Isaiah 44 says, their sins would be blotted out like a cloud or dissolved like a mist. That they would be restored to God because Jesus paid the penalty that we deserved. He bought us back. To God, that's redemption. And the way that you become redeemed is by faith. That you confess your sins, you turn from them, and you exercise trust or faith for this future. Some of you are here today and you have been redeemed, but you're not acting like it. And so the word of Isaiah, again, the command of God to his people who had been redeemed is applicable to you, where God says, return to me. My steadfast love has not forgotten you, and so return to me. And for others, we enjoy the true benefits of being redeemed, and one of the chief ways we do that is in the gathered people people who have all together been rescued, delivered, bought back and are bound together. The church is bound to God by redemption and the people are bound together by that same redemption. God's great love in which he's loved us. So let me close this morning as I think about God and his his nature of seeking and saving the lost of extending promises to those that he calls. I think of a story that I read not long ago about an 8.2 earthquake that flattened Armenia in 1989. And within four minutes, over 30,000 people lost their lives. And in the midst of this utter devastation and chaos, there was a father who left his wife securely at home because he needed to go out and search for his son who was at school when the earthquake happened. And as he approached the school, he came upon it to realize that the school, too, had been completely flattened like a pancake. And after the initial shock, he remembered the promise that he had made to his son. He made a promise to his son like many of you make to your sons and your daughters. He said, no matter what, I'll always be there for you. And the tears began to fill his eyes at the thought that this promise might be broken. And he looked at the pile of debris that was once the school, and it looked hopeless, but he kept remembering the commitment that he made to his son, And he began to concentrate on where he walked his son to class at school each morning. And remember that his son's classroom was in the back right corner of the building. He rushed there and he started to dig through the rubble. And as he was digging, other forlorn parents arrived on the scene, clutching their hearts and screaming and sobbing, My son or my daughter, they're gone. Other well-meaning parents tried to pull him off the rubble saying that it was useless. It's too late, they'd say. They're dead. You can't help. Go home. Face the reality. There's nothing you can do. To each parent, he responded with just one line. Are you going to help me now? And then he'd proceed to dig for his son, stone by stone. And the fire chief showed up tried to pull him off the school's debris, saying the fires are breaking out, explosions are happening everywhere, it's not safe, we'll take care of it, go home. To which the father replied, are you going to help me now? And the police came and they said, you're angry and you're distraught and it's over, you're endangering others, go home, we'll handle it. To which he replied, are you going to help me now? But no one helped. And courageously, he proceeded alone because he needed to know, he needed to know for himself, was his boy dead or was his boy still alive? And so he dug for eight hours, and 12 hours, and 24 hours, and 36 hours. And finally, on the 38th hour, he pulled back a boulder and he heard the voice of his son. And he shouted with a loud shout, Armand! And he heard back, Dad! Dad! It's me. We're trapped in here. I told the other kids not to worry. I told them that if you were alive, that you'd save me. And when you saved me, that they would be saved, because you promised, no matter what, I will always be there for you. You did it, Dad. What's going on in there? The father said, How is it? There's 14 of us left, the boy said, out of 33. We're scared, we're hungry, but we're so happy that you're here. When the building collapsed, it created a wedge, like a triangle, that we were saved under. Come on out, son, the man said to his boy. But the boy would not go, at least not go first. All the other kids had to go out first, and he said, I knew that I could let them out first, because no matter what happened... I know that you will be there for me. That is a picture of deliverance, of rescue, of redemption. And it's with that same tenacity that God pursues men and women and boys and girls from all walks of life, from all nations of the world to redeem them into his gathered people. The church is bound to God and the members of the church are bound together by redemption. May we live accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great love that you display to us to rescue us to buy us back, to give us a hope and a future, to change our identity, to move us from lawlessness to purpose and direction, to save us from ourselves and from our sins. We thank you that we're brought from darkness into light, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your Son. We thank you for redemption. And I pray today, Father, that for those who are now just experiencing a conviction of your sin for their sin for the first time that indeed through faith you would redeem them for those of us who have been far off that we would return to you and for those lord who view their church experience even though they know you as another event to come to on sunday that through the coming weeks, we would be able to see more clearly what your divine plan is for this gathered people that starts with redemption. We pray this for the sake of your glory, for the good of ourselves, and for the expanse of the kingdom. Amen.